Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 271st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the hottest young actors in Hollywood, in more ways than one in the eyes of many. He's a Scotsman who burst onto the scene as Rob Stark on the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, spanning 2011 through 2013, and who, earlier this year, won the Best Actor in a Drama Series Golden Globe Award for his portrayal of Sergeant David Budd, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan who grapples with PTSD as he protects the British Home Secretary, who was largely responsible for that war happening in the first place, on the BBC One smash hit turned Netflix streamed show Bodyguard, Richard Madden. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 32-year-old and I discussed how an insecure and overweight kid wound up acting in the first place, how he came to spend five years of his life working on Game of Thrones, and how his departure via the Red Wedding emotionally jolted him, why Bodyguard was so arduous an experience that it almost caused him to quit acting altogether before, that is, he saw the fruits of his labor, What's next for him in terms of both confirmed projects like the forthcoming Elton John biopic Rocket Man and rumored jobs such as a return to the part of Sergeant Bud on a second season of Bodyguard and perhaps a shot at the role of James Bond in the 26th installment of the 007 franchise, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Thank you very much for having me. I was born and raised in a little village called Eldersley mm-hmm. in Scotland. My father was in the fire service for 30 years, and my mother was a classroom assistant in the primary school that I went to, but yeah. not while I was there. So I understand that you know this may be hard for some of our listeners who know you from Bodyguard, Game of Thrones, to process, but you put up with some crap as a kid. You were a little bit bullied, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's bullied as a kid, really, aren't they? I think everyone is. I think mine was just probably a bit more specific because I was an actor kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I missed school. For a couple of years, really, I didn't go to school and then came back to school with a television show that was a kids' TV show. Mm-hmm. So it was playing to my peers twice a week. So that's kind of a weird situation to get into. And also, you know, I was filming for two years, so I uh, had catering for two years. <laughs> so services. And PlayStation arrived. So right. catering plus PlayStation and filming meant I kind of ballooned to quite a rotund young man. Really? So we're talking like, what, preteens still? No, like kind of from about age of 12, I yeah. started to eat more. <laughs> <laughs> and so the fact that you had first gotten even into youth theater was driven by what? My shyness. I was a really shy, shy kid. And where I, I went to school, uh, West Coast of Scotland, I went to quite a rough high school. And I was a really shy kid, and I wanted to kind of get my confidence up before I kind of dived into this kind of a bit more grown-up world. So I ended up going to youth theatre to try and do that and imagined to get scouted for kind of a film and a TV show, and it kind of went from there. First professional role, age 11, what were you asked to do? It was in a film called Complicity, which I think had a different title over here. It was a film with Johnny Lee Miller based on a book and, surprisingly, was actually my first job and Keely Hodds, who plays the Home Secretary and Bodyguard, was also no in that way. job, uh, which we didn't work out until the last about two weeks of filming when we were both talking about it. And she was like, wait, you were in that? And I was like, oh yeah, God. you were in that? She was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, okay. But it was quite a tough role, I think. My part was uh, in these flashback sequences. And so I was 11, and the main bit was that my character was raped in the woods by this kind of big 50-year-old red-headed Scotsman, <laughs> and then I kill him with a log. Right. So it was a kind of 
baptism of fire, of diving straight into right. heavy drama, which is a really interesting thing is to kind of read that Ian Banks novel as an 11-year-old because it's very much an adult book. Yeah. And so that then, I guess, pretty soon after was followed by this kids' TV series, all this stuff. And then, so what you're saying is when you go back to school, when you're not on a set, on top of whatever people are giving you a hard time about weight and whatever, you're also the kid that was in the movie and was raped and now you're on the kids' TV. So it just started all over again. And is that what led you to, at least for a little while, walk away from Absolutely, I think there was that, and it was kind of very confusing because I had a job. You know, I was 12 years old, I had a job, I learnt my lines at night, I went to work in the morning, I worked with adults all day, not a lot of children. And, you know, my parents were always, you know, very kind of happy vibes, always like their friends were around a lot. So I was kind of in an adult world from a young age, and and literally was, because I was filming, so, I mean, I was the first kid I knew to get a mobile phone, a cell phone, (laughs) because it was the only way to keep in touch with my parents. So I did all that, and then you went back to school and you were suddenly a child again. You'd speak to the teachers like you would speak to your director or a co-star, and they'd be like, be quiet and sit down, (laughs) because you're a child at school and we're adults. And you're like, oh, this is not the world I'm used to. So you had to kind of adjust again. And then it was tough, and so I kind of, I really took a bit of time out of acting. And when it came time to wind down high school, apply to what you were going to do next, one of the things I came upon was that it wasn't really treated seriously that drama school would be a viable option, right? No, I was told absolutely you will not get into drama school, and if you do and survive it, you'll definitely never work as an actor. It's what my school told me. So I wasn't allowed to apply to drama school unless I applied for a real university degree. So I applied for computing science, which I didn't even know what that was. Really. <laughs> but I had to apply for that in order to apply for drama school. You wind up at Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, yep. and before you even graduate... You're doing Romeo at the Globe Theatre, then right after you graduate, you're at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I mean, it seems like something happened over those years where you really maybe gained some confidence, blossomed. What was it at drama school? I wanted to, and I think maybe it's quite interesting you ask me these because it makes me kind of pair things in my head, I suppose. I wanted to work, and as much as I loved being in drama school, I left after the first year because... There's only so much I think you can learn from 20 other people that are the same age and same mindset, same experience as you, whereas you put me in a rehearsal room with two actors that have been in the business for 30 years, I'm going to learn more in that six weeks of rehearsing and then you know two months on stage than I am from six months of, of drama classes with actors of the same mm-hmm. ability level as me, the same experience level. So I think that was a big motivator for me and I got this job in a studio theatre in Glasgow and it transferred to London, that play, and that's where I got picked up and ended up going to the Globe to play Mm. Romeo for the first time. Um, Was that your first big leading role? I think that was my first big, yeah, that was my first big stage leading role, yeah. 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 And at that point, had you grown comfortable in your own skin? You were a little more confident about just life generally, being an actor, all of that? I guess you had to be to get that far. Uh, No, I'm still waiting for that moment (laughs) to happen, to be honest. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that moment. Well, so now... The way you actually completed your degree, they accepted these outside jobs as credit? Well, that's why I loved that drama school, was because most of the other drama schools in the UK were, you know, you come study with us, and then when you graduate, then you are an actor, and we Mm -hmm. give you a piece of paper that says you are an actor, which I find quite funny, because a degree in acting is, you know, I don't really know what that means. Um, (laughs) But my drama school said, no, you're an actor. And you come here and you're an actor in training and when you leave you're still an actor. Mm-hmm. And it was that mindset that I really loved. Mm-hmm. And that's very much what they stuck to. And so they would speak to the people in my productions, my directors, they'd come and see me in rehearsals, they'd come and see my shows. These are my tutors who yeah. grade me. So I managed to get through drama school without actually being there for the last two years. And so you 
technically completed the degree in 07. Then there's a few years, I guess not that many years before the first role that really got widespread attention, which would, I guess, be Game of Thrones. But even before that, you're continuing to get attention for your work on the theater. Donmar, I know you had just had a kind of very successful thing there when Game of Thrones came along, I think. Is that chronologically right? So what was the first awareness that there was going to be this adaptation of the books? And did you realize when you're going in to read, I assume, or whatever, that this is potentially a very big thing? No, not at all. And I'd, you know, drama school had finished and I'd been working in theatre in London. I'd moved to London and was doing well in the theatre world. And, and how it is there, especially at that time for me, was you're either in the theatre world or you're in the camera world. And it's very hard to be in both. Mm-hmm. And I made a conscious decision to what I wanted to be doing more camera work and learn how to do that why do you Art. think you made that decision? I've done a lot of theatre and I was really excited by the subtleties that you could bring on camera that I couldn't get on stage. You know, you can whisper on stage, but it's still a stage whisper, whereas I can whisper on camera and and you'll get it. Right. And especially on a cinema screen, you'll get to see something that's so subtle that I was I was interested in the detail and the delicacy there. And so I stopped taking any theatre roles or auditioning for theatre. So I didn't work for nearly 10 months wow. and I was broke and I was literally on my last rent I'd paid and was not just I'm going to have to move out of this place, but I'm going to have to move back to my parents' house mm-hmm. in Scotland. And then got an audition for this show called Game of Thrones, <laughs> um, which was very good timing. And it uh, just got sent like any other script, or how did you cross their radar? It came into my agents as an audition, which I went for, and I knew it was based on these books, so I started reading one of them and got these sides, and then I was called back in and met the creators, David and Dan, and thankfully they gave me the role of Rob Stark. Yes, we should just remind listeners this is the eldest son of the late Ned Stark mm-hmm. king in the north challenger of the Stark's enemy the Lannisters and this was for three the first three seasons of the show back when it was still drawing from the novels mm-hmm. and I guess even because the pilot were you there when it was still Tom McCarthy doing the original pilot oh, yeah and still a bunch of different actors as well Other, right. it wasn't just three years of five. five years five years of my life that's quite a while for a young actor to be attached to one Heart. Absolutely. And what did you make of that? I still look at my friends who are in the show now and they've been, you know, what, 10 years at mm-hmm. it. And I think 10 years is too long to sit with any character mm-hmm. as an actor, especially because you age at a different time from them, you know, right. so you could still be two months have passed in the show, but actually two years have passed in your life. So, right. you know, these things catch up with each other in a really strange way. But I mean, it was my first big foray into television and being able to tell a story over 10 hours rather than, you know, two hours in a theatre or two hours in a film. So, that was a different kind of skill set I had to learn of placing things and making a, a story arc. Because it's, I assume, like most things, not shot in sequence, right? So you just got to map out so much. How, how ahead of the, I guess, because it was those early seasons once coming from the book, you had an idea of where it was going or would they? I knew what was going to happen to me and when I was not going to be there right. from when I signed the contract on it. But yeah, the out of sequence thing was something I had to try and get used to of, you know, I'd be on the east coast of Ireland doing season you know, to episode four, and they'd throw you in the back of a car and you'd have to lie sideways in the back because I can't sit with my armour and my sword and my furs and everything, so you'd lie (laughs) sideways and they'd drive you to the the west coast of the island where you'd be shooting 
episode eight, uh, you know, scene fifteen, yeah. with a different direction. You, so yeah. you had to kind of have this all in your head, uh, kind of jumping around different bits of the. Did you the figure country. out a? Do you literally kind of map it out on paper? I did then. Yeah, I have yeah. done that before. Same as this show, the the Medici's I did, where mm-hmm. we shot eight hours of television all out of sequence, oh and that's spanning a twenty year period. So you kind of had like it was like the kind of psychopath's house. My apartment <laughs> I had in Italy was just covered in kind of ties and links and bits of paper and post-it notes that were just <laughs> like, mind. it was insane. Yeah, yeah it was right. like that. So with Game of Thrones, the other factor, I guess, was that it's on such a huge scale. There's, I assume, some VFX that you have to get used to dealing with for the, probably the first time. How did you like that style it's certainly different than performing in a small theater yeah well i loved it because i love acting and i love the technical side that what i wanted to learn was you know the technical side of camera acting and being on set like game of thrones gives you such an opportunity to kind of work that stuff out and get used to shooting with multiple cameras or big silver balls that you <laughs> pretend's a big wolf's head or something right. like that so it's a different skill set i had to get used to which i kind of thoroughly enjoyed and that's such you know i kind of grew up on that show in yeah. lots of ways and so it all leads up to episode 29, the Red Wedding sequence, which nobody who's seen it will forget. I guess, can you share how much work went into filming that sequence and then just how it impacted you, Richard, to be a part of such a growing grind of a thing? I think that sequence was, I think it was maybe three or five days to shoot that whole thing because of the scale of it and the choreography involved. And, you know, it's a room full of people that all end up in their own individual fights and people travel. I'd love to see the map of people (laughs) travelling around there and you've got musicians in there and you've got a lot of things going on. And, again, that was another, like, technical-wise of working out where an arrow's supposed to hit you and how your body's going to move when it hits you there, but the other one hits you. It's kind of like a strange dance you have to kind Mm. of work out, but... More importantly for me, this was the end of, like I said, five five years. Mm-hmm. And it was the last five days of, of the whole shoot of season three. That was the last thing we shot, the last, the whole bit of it. And so it was a really emotional thing because I spent more time with my on-screen mother than I did with my real mother. Mm-hmm. You know, my on-screen friends than I do my real friends. So it's your family. Yeah. And you're kind of leaving them. And that was actually the night of the rap party. And I got the last flight out. I didn't go to the party and I was still covered in all the fake blood from when I got murdered. So oh I'm just on a plane <laughs> sobbing, covered in blood. I looked like I'd just killed someone <laughs> and then jumped a flight. <laughs> and that was really the rush was that you were already right into the next thing, right? I mean, that's sort of the recurring pattern here. There's not too many vacations built in there, I guess. Yeah, not enough, I think. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I'm not complaining at all. I think there's lots of times when I've not been working. Um, so I really, I like to be working on better when I am. Yeah, just one Final thing I have to ask before we move on from the Game of Thrones chapter, as somebody who's certainly qualified to have an opinion, any theory on how this is going to wrap up this year? Uh, Just going to be a couple of dragons flying around and everyone's dead. Dead. (laughs) That's where my money's going to go into. I quite like this. People ask often about what's going to happen at the end of the season, Mm -hmm. and obviously I don't know and I don't want to know. I I ask them not to tell me, but I kind of pondered with maybe just making things up for a while just to see how people's reactions (laughs) would be. (laughs) Well, so for you, after that, I guess, 2013, the last episodes that you were part of on Game of Thrones, it seems like among numerous other things, there was a new collaboration that came out that involved both screen and theater acting, and that was with Kenneth Branagh, who had you in Cinderella on the big screen, the Disney live action, and then Romeo and Juliet again on the stage. How did you guys connect? I met Ken in... 
It was at Pinewood Studios to meet and to talk about Cinderella, which was great. And then we had such a good time filming, and me and Lily James. Yeah, she's in both too, right? Yeah, she's in both too, and we're both with each other in these two roles. And we just have a really great chemistry. I really love working with Lily, and I think Ken saw that Mm -hmm. and and kind of really brought out the best in both of us for that. So um, it was quite great. I mean, Kenneth Branagh's amazing genius of a man. I don't know how he does so much. So just to work with him, again, that goes back to me saying... I can learn so much from drama students yeah. that I'm working with, or I can be in, you know, half an hour with Kenneth Branagh and I can learn so much. Totally. So I kind of pursue those things. So for somebody like that who is a great actor but is now directing, is there anything that he was able to impart that you've been able to use as an actor? I think less specifically, more kind of, I admire his preparation to things and mm-hmm. his work ethic is outstanding. And I think if you have those things in place, it leaves you the room to be able to play when you're on set or in the rehearsal room if you've done all your prep. And I mean, like, we go to... When we were doing Romeo and Juliet, on the fifth day of rehearsals, we, full company, ran the play. When that's no scripts. Everyone's off book. Everyone's done it before we started. So if that's where you start at that level of preparation and we still got four weeks to go, you're going to kind of make something much better than kind of running about holding a script thinking things, you know, we kind of do a lot of prep first and then we get there and it gives us a landscape to play. And you think everybody got there that quickly because you know if you're working with Kenneth Branagh, you better come to play? Do not screw it up yeah, if you're working yeah, with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. You know, he's going to bring his A-game, you've got to bring yours. <laughs> right. Well, so 2016, before you would have gotten involved with Bodyguard, there's both what you just mentioned, the TV series about the Medici, and then also an action film, I think, for the first time with mm. Bastille Day opposite Idris Elba, another guy who has had a nice pop out of television into mm. movies and other stuff. But then you already had a relationship with Jed Mercurio before anything to do with Bodyguard, right? Can you share how you guys knew each other? I auditioned for his adaptation um, for television of Lady Chatley's Lover, and we really got on, and he directed that and wrote it. And we had a great time doing that. And then he came and said he wanted to meet me about this other project, Bodyguard. So I met him and the director in St Pancras Station in London because the director was French, so he was going back to Paris that day. So we met there for a quick hello, and he pitched me this script and sent them over to me, and I loved them. I think Jed's such an amazingly talented, genius mind of a writer. So when he kind of pitched me this and I went home and read it, I was already knew I'd be in safe hands and then read the scripts and was blown away and like, okay, let's get into this. And so had he written this for you based on working with you on Lady Chatterley? I suppose you'd have to ask him that. I don't think he went to anyone else before me on it. And he knows me really well, so I think there was part of that. And then I was getting into it, and and he's always on set, always working and rewriting and and, and tuning things. So I think I suppose that might be easier when you've got an actor that you know and that you're writing for, because you know he can pull out my strengths and challenge me on things I'm weaker at. Right. Well, let's just, if we happen to have a listener who has not yet seen Bodyguard, Sergeant David Budd, veteran of the war in Afghanistan, now afflicted with PTSD, protecting the British Home Secretary, who was largely responsible for putting him and everyone else into this situation, which obviously provokes some intense feelings. What do you think it was about that concept and the writing and whatever that you responded to? Well, the first thing was the kind of this moral gray zone that all the characters lie within. You never know why they're doing things for good or bad. You never know if they're inherently good or bad. And also that these people can change multiple times 
throughout the show. And so if you have that as a starting point, I suddenly kind of felt like I was in the real world right. because that's human beings yeah. rather than our kind of structure of Cinderella, for example, of, you know, the good shining white light and the big black dark light. <laughs> and, you know, you've got kind of, all right, everyone's in this grey place. Uh, and that's what kind of really tickled me about this whole show and how Jed manages to play with that. And then as an actor, to turn that round to the audience and take all of that interpretation and you interpret it yourself and, and start playing, then things get really interesting. Yes. And I think you've said in other things that it was also nice to, you know, nothing against having played a prince or Mm -mm. whatever before, but it's grounded in more contemporary reality and you're a father. Yeah. That I don't know if you'd ever played a father before. No, well, I think in Game of Thrones I didn't get quite to fulfill that. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'd never played a father before and that was something really, really interesting because I think that a lot of the characters I have played have been such definitive sons. Yeah. I mean, literally Romeo twice. Yeah. And he's very much a son and a boy. Or, you know, Rob Stark. All these characters which are always kind of usually reacting to a father's death a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And even in the Medici with Dustin Hoffman, you know, I was a son and a father kind of thing. Whereas in this, I'm very much just a father. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I don't have any children, but what I kind of understand from it is a very different idea to your own mortality mm-hmm. comes into play and your motivations for doing things. And that, to put onto a character, changes a lot of things. And when you have someone that's suffering from PTSD, in complete denial about that. You throw them into the mix with the Home Secretary and love and hate being things that are so very close in real life. And if you throw passion in, you kind of get mixed up on yeah. those two things. And I think that's what all the characters in the shows are kind of thrust between this kind of melting pot of all of that at the same time. What is one able to do to prepare to play a guy like this? <sighs> um, well, there was a lot of work, particularly with the PTSD, that I wanted to kind of work on. I'd never seen... PTSD portrayed in a way that I wanted to um, within this, which is is something that's a bit more delicate, a bit more specific and a bit more constant, rather than this idea of, you know, a glass drops in a restaurant and you duck for cover, Mm -hmm. which is things that can happen with PTSD, but that's just how it's portrayed a lot and that's not how a lot of people suffering with PTSD actually experience it in a day-to-day life. It's it's a constant thing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of work out how to do that within a character who's in total denial about that and is extremely volatile. And I think that's what kind of is fascinating about him is him pushing that down so hard that it comes out in violence or it comes out in sadness or it comes out in anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's just it's jumping out of him mm-hmm. and he's wrestling his best. And you put that into a character whose job is to literally not show anything, mm-hmm. then you've got kind of a ticking time bomb right interesting so were there any real people who either on the side of bodyguards or veterans or anything else who you kind of leaned on to all right so how would you handle this particular moment or whatever else like that in terms of technical detail yes we had some brilliant specialist advisors people who'd done that job the exact job that i was doing looking after politicians which was just fascinating they can only tell you so much and from a PTSD side of things, much harder because people really, really don't want to talk about mm-hmm. it. And that's the nature of that. But from a technical point of view, yeah, I could find out really amazing things. I had people that would teach me how to do these things because I am an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how to do these things. <laughs> I have to learn them. And very much so did with these kind of great technical advisors on the show. And what about from, I guess, any sources that have been close to government or bodyguards or whatever are there actually these kinds of relationships that happen i heard that sometimes oh, they'll yes. generally put like a female bodyguard with a female politician is that or you know male or male or it does get mixed it does get mixed and this is what's amazing because i remember at the time you know people 
saying this is this is absurd, this is ridiculous, they'd never end up together or whatever. <laughs> and I'd be on set and had specialist protection officers that would tell me stories of people that were very, very real. Um, <laughs> because you're in life and death situations, you right. see these people more than you see your partners or spouses, you care deeply about them. They're at your side at all times and your job is to care for this person. Mm -hmm. And so I think that can get complicated. I don't think it always does, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's definitely real life situations that like are that. not further, very far from where the Home Secretary and David Budd are at certain points. With this one, just to come back to the idea of doing things in sequence, because emotionally he's so all over the map, was there any way to do that with this one, or was this back to the charts? Back to the charts, really. We had the first three episodes, and then we shot the last three episodes, and then we shot the opening sequence, because it was supposed to be shot in the first month of filming, but we had a problem with scheduling and locations and stuff, so I had to change, so it got put on the end. And that was one of the best gifts for me as an actor because in episode one particular episode two he's so together and so showing nothing mm -hmm. and i always think as an actor by the time you get to the end the only time you know who the character is is after you've shot the last scene mm -hmm. because then you've done it all yeah so now i know who the character right, is and right. you always think right now i want to go back and right, film it because right, i know right. and i actually kind of had that opportunity <laughs> is to go back and shoot the opening sequence and show the audience and the character i'm opposite with as much as I can of this man bursting out of him before he goes into this completely shut down mode. Mm -hmm. So sometimes not shooting in sequence can be the biggest gift mm -hmm. that you get as an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly for Bodyguard that was because I could show a lot before I go into the shutdown. And that's what Jed's writing does and what I really loved about this show and that's why asking people for the patience to watch six episodes is to lay these seeds in the first episode or two that don't come to fruition until the end of the show. You kind of, it's a new restraint for me of kind of not showing everything instantly. Right. It's really kind of asking and hoping an audience to stick with you because you'll get the payoff three episodes from now. Well, one technique that I guess you guys use to kind of build the tension without any kind of cliche way of doing it was how many takes would there be per any scene? What would be the difference? Not a lot. We didn't have a lot of time to do things. One thing in particular I loved was we'd shoot these scenes, particularly scenes where I give away very little. And then right at the end of a lot of these scenes, we'd take a camera and we'd put it as close to my face as you could and we'd do a take where I show everything mm -hmm. that's going on in my head. This is my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Rather than, you know, the seven hours we've just shot of me saying... Mum, right. <laughs> and not giving away anything. And that was the gift for me, and then I think a gift for an editor is then, and a the director, they can then pull these bits in and kind of sprinkle them in, and that helps with just getting inside his psyche yeah. that you don't get otherwise. You don't get flustered from having the camera right in your face? Oh, it took a bit of getting used to, yeah. because, you know, you're not looking at the other actor, you're looking at the edge of the lens. Mm -hmm. So it just is a whole different skill set, yeah. again, that I really enjoyed because it gave me the opportunity, like I said earlier, of that subtlety. If you've got the camera, which has just got kind of your chin to your eyebrow, right. that's how tight they're seeing. So your tiniest eye movement, your tiniest twitch yeah. of your lip is going to get red and I find that really interesting to put that into me running across a rooftop with a gun you throw it into this kind of minute detail and then you get and some it really art. is though it's like an absolutely totally different skill than what you were training to do in drama school right I mean that's a whole different ball game it's just kind of impressive to be able to excel in both areas I think one feeds the other a lot of the yeah. time I mean, there's a lot of time you can try and do great subtleties that just don't work for stage. And then, you know, you're doing something that's way too big for the screen. So you have to kind of, and it's good to stretch both of those muscles, mm -hmm. you know, it really is. So 
all in, I guess we're talking about five months to shoot the first here, hopefully not the only season of Bodyguard. We'll come to that. But just you're dealing with heavy stuff here. Can you just turn it off and go home and then pick it up the next day? Or is this one of these where it really does weigh on you? It was not a comedy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an easy light. I didn't see any of my friends really for five or six months. And that's because just A, the hours, we're kind of shooting six days a week, 15 hours a day, not including travels. You're really, and I'm in every scene, so you're not getting away from it. But it's something I really enjoyed is getting myself into that kind of huge mind frame and something that sadly you can't, I'm not a method actor in any way, but it's something that I can't, between takes as much or when I go home at night, just shake off and forget about because it takes such a wrench of your brain to get into the zone that you have to be in to deal with the situation, to pull yourself so far out of it, you then have to wrench yourself back into it. And my driver would drop me off and it'd be like, I'll see you in seven hours. And you'd be like, okay, that's all my time to do all my prep work and look at all my charts to then go back into that situation. So there's not a lot of room. You carry it by accident. You carry it home and you carry this character's the weight of what is going on with him. And in a way, that's good. You don't want to undermine anything. But in a way, I had to have a little break after I finished filming because it was like, okay, I need to kind of get back. I spend more of my time in someone else's clothes and someone else's thoughts with someone else's words Mm -hmm. than I do my own. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to pull yourself back after you've kind of let that go for a while. Well, some media coverage, I know this will be shocking to hear, can be hyperbolic, exaggerated, whatever, but I wonder if this... uh, (laughs) It's shocking. But one thing I read, though, was that maybe it only sunk in or processed the whole emotional toll of the experience when it was over, but one of these things is saying that you were seriously thinking after finishing the season of just not acting again. Yeah, I was. It really took it out of me. You know, I didn't get to see my friends, my family, do anything. It's a relentless job. It's an unhappy place, Mm -hmm. which is just the nature of some of these parts. But yeah, at the end of filming, I just go, what am I doing this for? In a, in a great way, I kind of lost myself in it. You kind of lose the, we're making something good and important and entertaining as well as kind of thrilling and politically interesting about this, you know, the idea of the government looking on your search histories and all these kind of important topics to talk about. You lose sight of that because you're just trying to survive each day and that's the nature of doing television without a very big budget as well, with a very small budget, in fact, for BBC. Mm-hmm. So it really takes it out of you and you kind of go right as an actor what am I doing here because I'm in a very unhappy place Mm -hmm. actually supposed to be doing the thing I love I do this because I love it Mm -hmm. and so I had to take a break for a couple of months after it and then kind of get myself back and then after I did get myself back a bit in my head and you're like okay and then kind of seeing the rough cuts coming through Mm -hmm. of it and I was like this is something I'm really proud of actually and you know what yeah nothing like if it was easy everyone would do it right what would you have done if you had not come back to it not computer science, anyway. <laughs> um, I don't think I can do anything else. I, I think I, I need to do this, and I will only do this. I want to do this, and I think it's just so part of my life and kind of getting to know myself and, and getting better at this kind of art form I've chosen to do for the rest of my life. There is no other option. Right. So I'm going to just have to keep acting, I suppose. Well, so this show, the six episodes began rolling out in the UK in August 2018, became a phenomenon. The first episode attracted 10 million viewers within a week, the largest showing for a new drama since Downton Abbey. And then things only grew each week. I think more than 24 million people watched at least part of the season. Season finale was the UK's most watched episode of any drama series since they started keeping such records in 2002. What do you make of all of that? Why do you think people responded to such a degree? It still sounds funny when I hear it out loud. <laughs> that many people watched it. I mean, none of you were all that 
famous prior to this show. The property is not a familiar one to people. No. So why did this happen? I really don't know. I mean, if I did, then I'd be applying it to every job I did, obviously. <laughs> no, I really don't know. But I think, again, it comes down to who these characters are and how human they are. Because I suppose when you're sitting at home or on the bus or train, whatever you're watching the show, I suppose you can see bits of yourself and all of these characters and all they do. And I think that's what kind of made it really interesting and compelling is that hopefully within our entertainment fictional world we created a place that you very much feel lived in i suppose for especially in england there was you know the idea of i mean it was it's london it's that city so a lot of people can really imagine it and the kind of political landscape and things are going on is very kind of touching on the button so people are tuned into it but i genuinely don't know apart from jed mercurio's brilliant writing mind and you know excellent performances from people like keely and the great team that kind of did it i really don't know i think sometimes the stars just line up yeah. and something hits something i really don't know i'm still trying to work it out <laughs> well one thing that i guess there's no denying it's there or it's not this show starts rolling out and suddenly you are a much more recognized person and i guess to the extent that you know, you're dealing with things like paparazzi maybe for the first time and all of that. From what I understand on the chronology, you were filming Rocket Man, which I'll get to in a second, when this was all blowing up. So when and how did you first sort of realize that things had changed for you? I don't you know, because you're right, I was filming at the time, which I think was great, because I think, madly, when the show aired, by, by the time it finished, I think it was one in four people in the country had watched it. It's crazy. Which is quite a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and so that was kind of strange. And I'd had, I suppose, in terms of fame-wise and things, I'd had, you know, different waves with Game of Thrones. There was always a wave every year where it got a bit heightened when you're back in people's psyches, and then it dips off while right. you're not. And then Bodyguard sort of blew up a bit. And I was filming, just kept my head down, really, and did my job on that. And then... It switched into when I got nominated for the Golden yes. Globe. That's when I was like, oh, this has, this is a bit bigger than I thought now because there's people in other countries watching right, this. Right. This is strange. And then kind of went on that adventure and now I'm here and I've not really kind of caught up with the fact that people really enjoyed this show and lots of people tuned into it. Well, we should say the way that it suddenly expanded beyond the UK is that even before it's airing on BBC... Netflix had come in and I guess acquired the rights to subsequently stream it everywhere. So 190 countries suddenly. I mean, did you maybe feel a second wave when it hit Netflix? Because, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was so strange because in the UK, it had been week by week, it had been built up. And then with Netflix, I remember I came to LA, I think a week after it had been on Netflix and noticed just a quite a mad shift. I've been like, it's only been on a week, but I'm in this country and people are stopping me to talk about really? it. And it also quite funny because it would be people who looked really exhausted because they'd be like, I stayed up all night and watched <laughs> six episodes and they're like drained and anxious. Right. I can relate. Um, right? So you're like, okay. So yeah, that was a really different shift and that's what's brilliant about Netflix is that yeah. we can suddenly be there and it's like, okay, that's what's fascinating is then so many people watched it on Netflix right. again and you're going like, what did we do here that made this work? I don't know. Right. So... You've recently relocated to the States. While this was all happening, initially you were still in London. Yeah. And so how did the crazy side of celebrity culture manifest itself in, I guess, pretty much outside your doorstep? Literally outside my doorstep. And that's, you know, one of the more unpleasant things about mm -hmm. a show that people have enjoyed and watched is that 
paparazzi are outside your house and following you around, and that's not a very pleasant thing. You feel kind of it's just strange, especially because I'm in London and my house is you know very close to the road. So mm-hmm. you're kind of sitting there being like there's someone five foot away from me with a camera just waiting for me to open my door, which is a kind of strange, yeah. anxiety inducing in its own way. And uh, I don't know, just try not to get in your head about it too yeah. much. And now there's plenty of that kind of stuff that happens in LA, but is it a little? There's maybe more people to divide it amongst. So do you feel that it's a little more manageable here? Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, no. interesting. Let's come back to the Golden Globes. I don't want to gloss over that because that's a pretty big deal where you get this nomination and then you go to the show in January and I'm going to humble brag about one thing, which was I was one of the handful of the people that cover awards that said it was going to happen for you. Most people were picking, I think, Matthew Reese or Matthew whatever. Reese, yeah. So for you, going into the night, what were your expectations? What's it like to be in a room like that? I guess maybe you'd been with Game of Thrones in situations like that, but not when it was about you and your performance. So just take me through that night for you. It was insane. I got ready at the hotel, and I was just ecstatic to be there and just thought it was all quite amazing that this had all happened and kind of really blown away by it and brought my parents over from Mm, the UK so they came which was just great I mean I told them come to LA it's gonna be great it's so sunny and nice it rained for 10 days straight (laughs) but uh, which hasn't happened before which happened before right (laughs) but they came and we we got ready and we went down there and a really surreal experience I'd done the Emmys in maybe 8 years or 9 years earlier with Game of Thrones being there to kind of promote that but never where you're like I'm actually nominated Mm -hmm. here for something and this is all very strange. And so you get in there and I remember it was actually I was sitting at my table beside Julianne Moore, which is just in like <laughs> insane as it was. And she said, If you win, do you want to come out behind me or do you want to go the other way around? And I laughed her off and I said, oh, don't be silly, I'm not gonna win. Just you sit in your seat, don't be silly, Julianne Moore, and trying to calm myself down. And then they read out my name and I'm like, Oh my god. God, and I turn and look at Julianne Moore, and she's like, "Congratulations!" I'm like, "This is insane!" Oh, and then you I have to, and then speech. I, and then I have to squeeze out behind her. Oh, you went, so you went, you did go behind her. I went yeah. out that way, yeah. Right, so, yeah, but that was yeah. a very. I mean, you were put together. I mean, you did a nice, nice that, speech. Thank you. That's yeah. my, that's thanks to my father because I think the day before he said, "You need to write a speech, son," and I said. I'm not going to win this. I'm not going to write a speech. I don't need to write a speech. I'm just going to be there. It's going to be a lovely mm-hmm. evening. We're all going to get drunk afterwards and have a very, very good time. <laughs> he said, no, you should write a speech. And I said, I'm not going to. She said, just write down a list of people you want to say thank you mm-hmm. to if it happens. I said, fine. So I did. And then I was walking up to stage going, it's, it's, in, it? my, it's <laughs> in my pocket somewhere. I've got it. I've got it. Right, I've got it. I was like, thank, thank you, Dad, for making right. me do that. And then from that night, did you find that, you know, the thing with Netflix I've found in this country is, they're either binge watching it immediately or something motivates them to quickly go and catch up. So this would certainly yeah. be something that motivated people to quickly go and check out Bodyguard if they hadn't. Mm-hmm. So from just sort of a career point of view, did your representatives, did you find that out of the Globes there was more heat suddenly? I think more heat, yeah, definitely. I suppose it's something else for people to see me in. Right. So to me directors that have known me from Game of Thrones or other projects I've done, to have something here that I'm not just purely defined by Rob Stark from Game of Thrones now. Right. There's another character there, another kind of strength to my bow. People see me differently. I think that's what's been really useful is people say, okay, we've seen you in that and now we've seen you in this. Mm-hmm. You know, And then both being you know, successful shows that have kind of got a wide wide viewership yeah that's what's kind of been a game changer people seeing maybe a different versatility and and also there's a time difference between game of thrones and people first seeing me in that to bodyguard now where i'm as i said a father and and you know maybe a good guy maybe a bad guy 
totally different. Yeah. So, all right. The final few things here, just looking ahead to the future. First of all, where have things been left? Will there be another season of Bodyguard with Richard Madden? I very much hope so. This is the mind of the brilliant Jed Mercurio. We have to see what happens there. But one thing we did is as soon as the show came out, because we never intended to do a second, mm-hmm. and we just intended to do one, but then the show went down so well and you know, was enjoyed by so many people and affected so many people for many different reasons. We sat down and we're like, okay, look, if we're going to do another one, what's it going to be like and stuff? And we agreed, let's not do what... A lot of shows do, which we both agree I think is wrong, is, you know, the first season's airing while the second season starts shooting. It's like, no, let's not. Let's let the dust settle a Mm -hmm. bit and let's not do it this year. Let's let this year go and then let's get into it the next year if we're going to do it. And I think that's smart just technically for the character point of view. It needs to be because... He's now, for people who have not seen it, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully everyone has seen it, mm-hmm. if you've not, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, at the end of episode six, he's suddenly probably the most famous man in the country. And you can't just jump into him going back to work after no. that. I mean, I needed a vacation at the end of filming, <laughs> and David Budd definitely needs a vacation at the end of his time on there. Mm-hmm. And so I think the most interesting thing to do is to leave a bit of time, let the dust settle, right. and then let's catch up with David and see what his life's been since that event. Because as you've said in other interviews, it's not often that we have seen on TV or in films or anywhere a hero actually asking for help. That's what I loved about this character a lot. And again, this kind of leading man, this hero, this tough guy, I make it sound so simple and it is him breaking and saying, I need help. Mm -hmm. And it is such a simple thing that we just don't maybe see Mm -hmm. very much or enough at all. Mm -hmm. So to see that happen with him at the end is something I think is really powerful and useful. And I think if we leave time for that to take effect uh, and see where we pick up with him is a much more interesting way of doing things than skipping over it and jumping back into a formula. I think this is good because the formula was so new and different and we don't want to undermine that by doing the same thing again. So we have to think of something clever. And in the Um, meantime, we will see you I guess in May, as John Reed, Elton John's former manager and boyfriend, opposite Taron Edgerton in Rocket Man, which we mentioned earlier. This is from the director who succeeded Brian Singer on Bohemian Rhapsody, Dexter Fletcher. That movie turned out pretty well in the grand scheme of things. Did so, pretty well, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> so, anything you can share about this? I mean, have you and Elton John become BFFs? What are we talking about here? Yes, Elton's a good friend <laughs> and I love him dearly. Yep. Taron Edgerton's outstanding in this mm-hmm. film he really is so brilliant and the more i've gotten to know elton the better i see how brilliant taron's performance mm-hmm. is and that is just coming from the bottom of my heart he's really outstanding actor that threw himself into this and the film is just i think it's a really beautiful pieces it's heartbreaking and it's joyous and it's exciting and it's colorful and it's really different for me i'll go from bodyguard to being in something that i may or may not be singing and dancing Mm -hmm. in certain points so it's a different thing altogether Uh, but i think it's going to be a really exciting ride and then i see on the filmography there's another 2019 film with sam mendes Yes. What's that about? I don't really know if I'm allowed to talk about it very much. <laughs> it's 1917, it's called. It's yep. set during World War One, And I think that's probably as much as I can say about it, apart from it's got a lovely bunch of actors, yeah. and I'm very honoured to be part of are, it. Can we, can we just share who some of the other people in it Absolutely. are? Absolutely. We've got Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. and Mark Strong, Colin Firth, a young actor George Mackay, who I worked with years ago, Andrew Scott. And it's got a lovely bunch of actors lined up that's, uh, that's only a few i'm sorry for everyone i didn't mention but no, there's lots of them. and this is like a fall movie i don't know when it's going we'll to be all right here's the requisite one where i'm sure you know you're mentally like all right let's take a shot here we go we have heard that you have been 
approach already about the role of James Bond. Don't believe everything you read not, in the papers. Not true. No, it's like I'm very flattered to be included in that conversation for lots of reasons because I've always been a big fan of those stories and books. But that is just hearsay and rumours. Okay. They've got a lot to be doing. Um, <laughs> well, that's a good rumour mill to be part of, right? I guess. And I guess just lastly, if you were to just, in a situation like this, to just sort of stop and think, like, we're talking less than a year ago, you were, if somebody knew you at all, like you were saying, you know, the guy from Game of Thrones. I feel like a lot has changed in the course of nine months, maybe. How do you feel about things right now? Just big picture. I'm really trying to catch up with myself, to be totally honest. You know, it was a year ago, 12 months and a week ago, I think, or two weeks ago, I finished filming Bodyguard. Oh. It's just over a year since I finished filming. Right. To be sitting here now after kind of this mad journey I've been on, which has been so exciting. And I'm still trying to catch up with myself. And most importantly, I think, just personally, as an actor, this kind of you're constantly beating yourself up, working out if you're good enough or deserving enough or whatever, and you're constantly battling that. And I think to have a year with so many good things in it is a real wake-up call for me to kind of believe in myself as much as other people sometimes do because I think I'll just be generally happier if I do that. <laughs> and so that's kind of something I'm focused on doing is kind of enjoying things when they're good because they're often not, <laughs> and things are really good now. Well, very well-deserved. Congratulations. Thank and you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.